0: did feel like we kind of owned town in a way of course we were just reveling in the debris of the industrialized manchester
1: meet andy spinoza drawn by its music culture and radicalism andy arrived in manchester from london over 40 years ago he came from a loving adopted family but was looking for somewhere to fit in and start writing his own story Andy co-founded Manchester's alternative magazine and guide, City Life, and was a diary editor for the Manchester Evening News. In the 80s and the 90s, you'd find Andy in the bars and parties of Manchester, reporting on celebrity gossip and culture, and he shares lots of those stories in this conversation. He set up his own PR company, Spin Media, in 1998, just two years after I set up Roland Dransfield. He then changed the name to SKV Communications because as he said, it was more appropriate. And in his words, we soon then became friendly rivals. In 2020, he closed his agency on the back of the pandemic, but this year he's released a book called Manchester Unspun, which chronicles 40 years of musical, social and architectural transformation in the city is the first book I've read that brings all of this together, and it's an absolutely brilliant read. So after years of success, what drove him to call time on his PR business? Why did Manchester have such an impact on Andy and him on it? And what has it been like to chronicle the city that made him? I'm Lisa Morton, and this is We Built This City. Andy, thanks so much for joining me on We Built This City.
0: Nice to be here. Thank Frank, you.
1: I've been trying to get you on for a while. You've been really busy writing this amazing book, Manchester Unspun, and I'm really... At this point, I should do that. I know, absolutely. Stop and Watching you, millions. <laughs> <laughs> you just signed it to my friendly rival, which made me smile because I kind of forgot that. Our businesses opened at a similar time and we were running kind of parallel. Yeah, yeah. Probably pitched on a few things and...
0: Yeah, we, I think Downsfield was going a, a little bit earlier than, mm. so Spin Media was 1998, I left the Manchester Evening News, I was kind of excited by all the interesting things happening in Manchester, and I have mentioned this, book. I, I applied for the job of editor of the Manchester Evening News, which I didn't really think I was going to get but I just wanted to sort of try and get noticed from within the hierarchy but I didn't get an interview I was the diary editor at the time the gossip columnist maybe they thought you know that ruled me out lack of seriousness I suppose but I didn't get an interview and so that did make me think about did I have a future within the newspaper which is obviously I think the news probably when I was writing for it was seen or read by about a million people a day that's about a third of the city's population um greater manchester obviously so it was a big deal and i thought i had the best job in journalism in manchester but i knew that i couldn't rest on my laurels so yeah i need to be and then we were probably pitching for similar clients and stuff and sometimes you won sometimes we did but unlike some other agency bosses i think we managed to keep it nice and am- amicable
1: I think so absolutely and we kind
0: of I think we were jointly on
1: a few big projects didn't we so and the
0: table do with clients who had the same uh, the the same objectives yeah yeah.
1: and I think we shared similar values in terms of how we wanted to both put more in than we took out so I think we used you know our platforms to do that so and your team was great and some of your team members I'm in touch with now so yeah it was a, Contemporaries. a benign... Contemporaries a ben- <laughs> yes, exactly. that, uh, in the,
0: swimming in the same waters back in, the, back in those days.
1: But unlike me, you're not a mank. You're an adopted mank mm. and um, probably more mank now than anything else. But So you're from East London. Tell me a bit about that and what brought you here. Well,
0: I like to describe myself as a mank you know, Because oh, I'm right. a cockney by birth. In yeah. that I was born... Uh, you know within the sound of Bow Bells church as, as as a true cockney has to be uh, but my parents um moved to north london quite soon after i was born but no i came here in 1979 i was attracted by music scene really but also by everything that was coming out of manchester like granada tv in particular made great tv programs and manchester had this very interesting uh history as a kind of place of radicalism and ideas and um you know, all that appealed to me as a seventeen-year-old, wondering where to go to to university, but particularly the music, the music scene. You know, it mm. uh, was a big draw for me. Uh, but I do remember, you know, reading the, the the NME would be a big or the music press, three music papers back then I had a real influence on on uh, yeah. Cool kids who liked you know music, and they'd have these photos of by mainly by Kevin Cummins, but other photographers of Manchester, post-industrial Manchester, looking really grim or monochrome and really kind of uh, depressing. For an alienated uh, kid like me, that was like an alternative tourist board. You know, come to Manchester, <laughs> it's really depressing. You can come here and be uh, and be uh, and be miserable and alienated and have that kind of fun so yeah that's all the the influences that kind of dragged me here
1: and you've referred in your book to when you arrived in manchester well you use the term that it was crippled Mm.
0: seemed to be seemed to be Uh, yeah yeah. but but was that almost romantic to you at that time yeah because i think it did have empires that have been ruined are quite aesthetically thrilling like you know we go to we go to athens and rome we see these fantastic old buildings uh, Manchester also had a lot of old buildings and they were also looked pretty derelict, pretty vacant. And, um, you know, in I, 1920, I started going to the Hacienda, started going into town. And you know, I lived in Hume, so you'd walk from Hume to the Hacienda, for instance. You walk past the McIntosh Mills complex. It was just all um, uh, blackened buildings, empty buildings. Um, it did have, you know, and and there was Castlefield or Castlefield as I came from London, (laughs) but all that was, you know, it was empty. There was no one there after six o'clock apart from the clubbers and did feel like we kind of owned town in a way. Of course, we were just reveling in the debris of the industrialized Manchester you know look at those areas now uh, you can tell how booming they are because it's incredibly expensive you know to to live in apartments there and it's full of life and full of buildings and buildings have been repurposed haven't they in many many respects but um it was very very different city i think the research i had done for the book talks about there was probably 500 to 1000 people living in the city center back in 79 when i arrived and I mean, I know for a fact the ONS figures, the official figures can't keep up with um, the reality. I, the, the research I had done shows about 75,000 people living in the wider city centre, you know, the way it's built the city centre now. People say Manchester City Centre, they can be meaning Trafford or Salford mm-hmm. as much as Manchester because it's bursting out the boundaries, isn't it? The reason behind the book, is that I just thought it was an important historical period that I've lived through. That 40 years, if you like, from 1980 to 2020. And in that 40 years, the city has completely resurrected itself and reinvented itself. And and I thought I could provide an account of that. So I wanted to document my time and also weave a little bit of personal story through it
1: you said that you were drawn here um Mm. as a wide-eyed student and Mm. that you'd felt like an outsider in london so manchester was calling so why did you feel like an outsider
0: well that's to do with more of to do with my adoption in that i had great love in my adopted family but i just felt different and if you could see them all you'd see that i looked different and um you know a lot of young kids want to get away anyway so there was that, um, but I did feel, I didn't have a backstory to my birth parents. So I felt like there was a, a blank page to be written on. Yeah, that's the, that was the personal drive really. I think, you know, when you, and that's that was, the, you don't try and analyze yourself too much when you're younger, but when you get to your sixties, which I was when COVID hit, is a natural, ref- well, we were all forced to reflect, weren't we? But, um, I mean, I noticed there's actually loads of memoirs coming out now from famous people and semi-famous people. And I think they're all COVID. Uh, <laughs>
1: Babies. But they are, because, <laughs> yeah. you know, right,
0: we're all knocked down for 18 months, two years, weren't we, effectively? Yeah. So that became the opportunity, I think, for people of a certain age to uh, put pen to paper well, I
1: remember speaking to you early on to check in with you because I'd, I'd heard or I'd read that you'd decided to um, call time on on your PR business, mm. um, and it was a big shock for me because I was thinking, "What the hell am I going to do? Maybe I've got no business left after this." But you were so calm when I spoke to you, so tell me through that. <laughs> what was I? Yeah, you were like, you were like, "I'm going to, I'm doing this. I'm going to write. I'm going to write a book," okay. and you were so calm that it made me feel that maybe if there was a dead end for me at covid because i did, couldn't see how far it was going that it would be okay you were okay
0: so when covid hit um there was an early stage conversation with a with a big um you know marketing you know, international marketing group to you know to sell skv communications which i was pretty excited about but it was you know we hadn't started talking proper numbers yet just the just the um, early stages and then I got a call from the senior uh, person involved who said COVID's hit you know nothing's gonna happen for a year 18 months we don't know you know we're all It it was in the early stages of COVID and I think that's when everyone was panicking the most in terms of not being able to understand what the future looked like and I made quite a quick decision at that point to walk away from it. It was a voluntary liquidation. There was some uh, working capital in the business and it took a three-month a three wind down. I'm very pleased that I was able to set up the majority of our people working with their clients. They continue that. I mean, some are still, what, three years later, still working with those clients. But of course, they're all working from home, they slashed the what the PR agency was charging, um, which you couldn't you couldn't have said before COVID. We're all gonna, we're all going to work from home, and we're going to charge you less. You know, people thought you're kind of crazy, but uh, most of those people are, are still working with a, you know a lot of the clients. Mm. Um, so I was pleased to be able to give them some continuity. There wasn't a huge. Uh, break off from their their income mostly i'm I'm talking now about the more senior people people with families and mortgages and um so i was pleased that that were i was pleased that the clients responded actually in a very mature way Mm. so that made me feel good from a conscience point of view but um i just wanted to move into a new a new direction i didn't really have the book idea to be honest at that moment because that came that spark was ignited about six months later but um I just felt that and uh, you know bandwidth wise I think I had enough I don't respect any anyone who runs a, a PR business because I don't you know because it is a kind of lonely place to be and it takes up a lot of psychic energy it could be very very draining um, you know I, I really do uh, you know admire anyone uh, who's, who's stuck it out like you have so. Lisa <laughs>
1: So in terms of your PR career and then obviously your career as a journalist, which field you cut most?
0: Probably the journalism and the daily journalism. Just There was just something very romantic to me. You've grown up on, you know, movies and TV and comics and everything about, you know, the journalist bringing the, you know, steaming hot news to the to the city streets. I would go out so I would do my diary page in the first thing in the morning between eight am and nine am. I'd get the proof at ten am. The paper would be on the streets in the city centre at twelve twelve noon, mm. and I would walk around. You know, I'd go to Phil Potts a lot on uh, um, Lincoln Square, yeah. and when it was sunny, you know, I'd sit there on a bench, eating my sandwich. There was people, you know, reading the paper, reading what I'd been up to the night before, <laughs> and. um and with City Life as well, when I sat up City Life before I worked for the Evening News, I remember there's a beautiful painting by Adolf Follette, who was a tutor of Lowry. And it's of Oxford Street in about 1911 or something. And there's, it's the railway viaduct that goes across Oxford Street from um, Piccadilly to Oxford Road. And there's a little kiosk in there um, selling stuff in the painting I mean, that kiosk was there. It's, it's something else now. It might be a, I think it might be a Brazilian waxing studio. <laughs> but anyway, there was a kiosk there and it still sold magazines and newspapers. And I, and I would drive down Oxford Street in the pouring rain and that exact same structure was there. It's that same little, I think it was, but maybe it was a f- um, florist's in Vanet's day. But I just thought, yeah, this City Life magazine, we are part of the life of the city, we're on sale. On the city streets, and you know that was that was how people got their information wasn 't it now yeah. you know printed material is is almost um, i mean i don't know i don't know who buys any magazines anymore apart from me and you know I see the some new agents stuff with magazine racks and I've, I just wonder if they're actually being being <laughs> bought like they like they were and how people are making a living from printed material
1: yeah and what Drew you to journalism because you got involved in writing for the University of Manchester newspaper, didn't you, straight away?
0: Yeah, I just always wanted to be a, a journalist. I just always wanted to. I mean, I'm not very good at concentrating on any one thing for too long. I've just got a pretty much grasshopper hopper mentality. So, journalism is great for variety and never doing the same story twice, obviously. So, it, that appealed to me. You know, I was very shy as a kid, as a student, and I actually used you know, being a journalist to, you know, it forced you when you've got a notebook and you've got a job to do, it forces you to talk to people. Um, so I kind of use that um, to bring myself out of my shyness. And as you know, I'm not shy anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Practice.
1: And tell us about, there's a brilliant piece in the book. Oh, I can't believe this. So Moon Grove. Mm. So I lived on Moon Grove. Wow. I lived on in, so this was the year, probably the year after uni um and maybe the year after when my dad kicked me out for being too vocal in my feminist views in the house um but i ended up with a group of people on the corner house on moon grove okay on the cobbles it was amazing we couldn't believe this find and we had a most amazing like 18 months two years obviously in the the heart of rush home but yeah
0: so, so i mean for people who don't know moon grove is this beautifully preserved victorian street in rush mm. just off dickinson road and you kind of turn off dickinson road don't you and the sort of the roar of traffic on wilmslow road disappears and you're in this it's like you've stepped back 150 yeah, like years gas,
1: the gas lamps well, <laughs> the still the gas lamps, so are, still the, there. And the lamps
0: are still there yeah. and um i was a student uh who was kind of obsessed with factory records and pop music and aware of this guy tony wilson who was on the telly and, and started up factory records and i found i saw this little notice um that he was doing a talk at a location in moon grove with gerald kaufman mp the late gerald kaufman mp he was obviously a quite famous politician back then i think this is 1981 um i was a second year student and i thought well i'm gonna to go to that And of course i had no idea what moon grove was like or where it was even and so me and my mate went out to find it i just thought this kind of meeting was billed as a sort of a debate it was being a big kind of community hall or something but <laughs> we, we as we got nearer to the address you know we worked out it was just someone's house <laughs> and we were ushered into the, one of these beautiful um little well quite big victorian house uh, and it was a fabian society meeting so i I guess the people organising it were Fabian Society members, and we were ushered into this living room with we about twenty people there, sitting on the floor and on armchairs. And in one chair, there's Tony Wilson. There's one chair, there's Gerald Kaufman. They're having this ding dong about um, about the media, and um, that was my opportunity. I took along a tape recorder to to interview the great, you know, Tony Wilson, who we had this brief exchange and. I had a little Philips mono cassette recorder, which was literally this (laughs) size, actually. And this was my uh, microphone that I was recording from. Um, The production team will find this of some humorous value. And I put the microphone there, and I asked Tony Wilson these questions, and he gave me these great replies. And I'm thinking, I can do an an interview here for the student newspaper. So anyway, when I got home, uh, played the thing. And because the microphone was on top of the player recorder, all I got was just <laughs> the sound of the cassette of the cassette going round and round and round and round. And I could just hear a little <laughs> that was Wilson was you know, the the occasional word <laughs> floated through the oh. and yeah, ruined my opportunity to. Um, Break into student journalism wow. with uh, with that uh, that 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 appalling attempt at, at being a proper journalist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, but, but some basic knowledge of you know I mean, yes. a proper journalist would like stick that under his f- under his mouth. Early days, I get, oh, get the then. yeah. It's how you learn. <laughs> it's learn by your it mistakes. It
1: totally is. It totally is. So tell us about setting up City Life. Was it three hundred uh, editions? Was I it? think there
0: was more than three hundred. Yeah, but but I'd left by the time yeah. it. So City Life was an alternative what's on guide in the in the style of sort of time out in london mm. and uh we with me and two uh, co-founders chris paul and ed glennett were all students at the university and um, we were at a loose end after uh, graduating and we had this idea to um to do what other magazines had failed to do which was um i suppose produce regular issues and su- and survive financially um, but we gave it a go and um, <clears throat> working you know ridiculous hours um, organized as a as a cooperative so we all earned the same money and we grew from our three three of us to I think there were 20 24 25 people uh, we produced a gay life magazine as well mm-hmm. as city life we had a typesetting business. And that was all fun and games, which there's a whole chapter about city life. And um, you know, there was a sort of a, as well as Watson and arts and music, there was um kind of a hard news revelation uh, aspect to it that we ran stories that we that the evening news wouldn't run, or we uncovered things, you know, and we got things wrong you know, horrendously in time to time. Um, but we were, you know, we probably never sold uh, regularly more than 3,000 copies, but we were read by, you know, the council, Granada TV, Manchester Airport. We were read by the people who ran the city and professional people, people I suppose interested in the music and cultural people as well. So it had a, a sort of an influence outside of its pure sales numbers
1: so what did you learn about yourself in those early days of city
0: life just that I could be uh, completely dedicated uh, to the point of obsession uh, that I could test myself to do things that were against the odds and um, I think you know I don't like to uh, psychoanalyse myself too much but you know I've always chosen things that have been hard to do like pushing a massive boulder up the hill and i also expected <laughs> the people around me to do to work as as hard mm. i know what you're saying i mean that life is
1: work do you have you found that throughout your life that you kind of never you know it can never really switch off can you because i think with, if in journalism or even in say you know pr or creating relationships you yeah. know you're always on the lookout aren't you for the story or yeah. who you can connect it never starts i don't,
0: I don't want to switch off mm. i mean i do like to relax that's different yeah um and I do um, get tired like, like everybody. And I do need to sometimes, you know, I've burned myself out on occasion. Uh, I, uh, especially when you've got a family and you've got three kids un, under six is what we had at one, you know, when they were all born. So, yeah, you know, I think you you just got to find, find balance.
1: Yeah, I, I can see that. I mean, I think... In the book, you refer to yourself as the human pinball of Manchester <laughs> Well, that's when not was. That's when I was the gossip columnist. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, because,
0: you know, I did, it was funny. Obviously, Manchester was a hell of a lot smaller, you know, and you could bounce, I could bounce around from, from Corner House in the Midland up to Dry Bar, which was, which came a bit later anyway. Mm. You know, Manchester was a much smaller footprint and with a few people that you, know, you could, like, the doorman of hotels, and a couple of paparazzi, and you know some restaurant concierges. you could find out which famous people were in were in Manchester mm. um, quite easily. But I mean, now yeah, it'd be a great job to have now, but <laughs> no one wants a no one really wants a gossip columnist like like we used to have.
1: Diane Bourne, who's obviously, she's our editor for some time, she said the same, that she used to have, like, a number of different outfits and would, like, swap. So you said the, the same. You had maybe
0: three outfits for a
1: night, depending on what, yeah. where you were going.
0: I mean, I remember once um, I went to a black-tie dinner and um, it was Saturday night. And it was really about going to the hacienda afterwards. And um, another PR person we know, Joe Leah. Had, had invited me to this dinner, and she sat me next to the managing director of the Manchester Evening News group, whose name I can't, and his wife, whose name i can 't remember, <laughs> and of course all I wanted to do was scar- <laughs> you know I got my notes from the dinner I wanted to scarf to the hacienda um, and I had my uh, I had my clothing for the hacienda you know i wasn't going go to I, I wasn't going to go what, down what there in it, black tie. So, I, and I just I, Yeah, well, I, this is it. I have jeans on and a, a, and a dinner jacket. And um, I just I, I just fessed up to him. I said, Look, you know, I've got to meet some people later on. I've done my job. He was fine about it. I just, he probably wanted to, to go there too. Of, to be yeah, there. I mean, it was just a kind of slightly mad uh, work in existence that I had just being paid to go to parties, really. Yeah. Um, but obviously, I had to get some info from those parties, otherwise
1: there would be no page. Well, one infamous party, because and it, when I was reading the book, I thought, God, yeah, it took me right back to Manchester Star Bars. Like, if you're a star, you're opening a bar, weren't you, yep. for a period? And it yep. was like <laughs> cheerleaders, Mick Hucknall's Barsa, Dry Bar, JW Johnson's. But the one that made me laugh, and it's in the, the book, is the launch of Sticky Fingers with Bill Wyman, which I thought, God, I remember, it was massive. It was kind of huge at the time he was doing this, but I didn't know the story behind it. So tell us that one.
0: Well... Short story, there was a big punch-up between Carolina Hearn and her new partner and Peter Hook of New Order, her, her former husband. I don't think they'd be divorced, but they were separated. And I was watching them, I said to Eamon Clark, the paparazzi, quick Eamon, it's going to kick off, he did a photo that went on the front page of the news the next morning, which was the only splash I ever got from the paper. Um... But then it was such a big story that every single tabloid scanned the even used front cover uh, photo and re- and uh, reproduced it as their own. Uh, and of course, Eamon was able then to sue all those newspapers and get a big wedge of money. But that's how big uh, Carolina Hearn was at the time. Yeah. Yes, Mrs. Merton, you know, yeah. there was such a fascination about her. And, um, you yeah, know, of course, died. Tragic, tragically young and was very you know very unusual interesting person but yeah it was Sticky Fingers opened in October 1996 I, and I said to Bill Wyman uh, the next time I met him <laughs> you can never bargain for <laughs> for that kind of coverage I mean I think everyone in the country you know who had anything to came anywhere near a newspaper knew that Bill Wyman had opened to Sticky Fingers in Manchester. Because that's where it all kicked off. And it is, it is in, the b- photos in the book came and allowed me to, to uh, reproduce it. And it is a very interesting photo, you know, of, of celebrities basically fighting and punching each other i feel
1: like it's almost like a modern renaissance type it was yes. like joel goodman's photo that went yes. around the world wasn't it when everyone was like the, the street scene up near the arndale and yes. everyone was, uh, <coughs> was that new year's eve was it when that's it was just right carnage yes yes and the in this breaking the fourth wall you got people looking straight into the camera yeah. did you ever feel back in the day when you were kind of covering those stories and trying to do the celebrity stuff that you were did you ever feel like you were compromising how you perhaps were as a person, what you would have wanted to get the story?
0: Yeah, I mean, those were the days, you know, the, the, the 80s and early 90s were the days of, um, I think we see it in the Beckham documentary recently. We see it in lots of cases about uh, phone hacking. You know, it was open season on celebrities and to a certain degree, you know, they were our quarry, And journalists felt free to write about their private lives, etc. And you know, I think being the Manchester Evening News, it was always far more watered down and toned down, and it was a family newspaper. So I don't think I ever. Well, in fact, you know, I I could have gone into that kind of journalism nationally because I had contacts on the nationals, and they were always on the phone to me about who, what I knew about this celeb or that celeb. And I had a relationship there, but he genuinely didn't interest me and I genuinely felt uneasy um about you know where was where was the line, where was their private life and what what was the public's right to know and all that kind of thing. So because at City Life I think we felt we had the moral high ground that we didn't that we were about a different sort of journalism. So, you know, I did go through a period where I thought maybe once or twice I'd overstepped the mark. I know I upset Anna Friel quite uh, quite a lot, or not a lot, once or twice, but quite badly. Um, and I was very friendly with her, you know, socially. Uh, and it was difficult, you know, because you you've got a relationship with with people, and and I obviously live in the city that I'm where I'm writing about people. Um, I mean, the the people who re- <laughs> who were really unhappy were. Pe- Office, often people coming into Manchester who weren't promoting a film, weren't there for PR purposes. Uh, often movie actors or TV actors or music people who were just in Manchester. I don't know what they were doing. They might have been recording an album or something, but they'd be in a bar where I was. So I would have to. I would rock up and I'll get their photo taken or whatever because I felt it was. This was my. Patch I mean I had to tell Ryan Giggs and his mates um you know but if they were going to come into town then I was going to write about it whether Alex Ferguson should have known about it or not you know I could have had him all over the paper and he was with um David Beckham's mate uh, David um, oh. Gardner and some others but look uh, so yeah you I was faced with all these decisions on, on a daily basis I did my best and no one really remembers that kind of the details anymore it's all fish and chip paper
1: (laughs) there's a lot in the book about the whole regeneration of manchester greater manchester and obviously you know like you've been done a lot of real estate a lot of placemaking over the years which has been amazing and it made me laugh because i'd kind of forgotten how important the ginger Crooner Mick hucknall yeah. from Simply Red was to the whole catalyst of, of Manchester really moving to that new era. Yeah,
0: I mean, I think my main point there was that everyone likes thinks, don't they, that I don't know, Liam and Noel are the proper Manx, you know, they're the but they're the, the those proper Manx skid all to London as fast as they could, and people don't, you know, there, there's a lot of mm, dismissive talk about because of the style of music so they're not cool but you know mick and his managers did put you know m- their own money money they made from their music into um well malmaison hotel Gate locks barca f- was the first one um and, and some other property developments as well and i mean those that i've mentioned just now v- were very pivotal in in You'll know from your regeneration work that a landmark building then has a ripple effect on the buildings around it and creates other interest and other investment. Manchester's regeneration hasn't always been at this kind of booming pace. It's been very, very fragile and it has on occasion needed some brave invest- investment in particular location to show the potential of a, of a place and to help it and to give confidence to others to come in around it and that's and that's what hucknall's money did you know no one really paid in that kind of credit and mm. um i have and i think it's something that people have, have latched on i don't want to get give the impression that um he did all this quite off his own back because he was advised to he was yeah but he took and he took mm. proper advice he can proudly say that uh, even though he doesn't live anywhere near manchester anymore but he played a big a big part in that
1: yeah it's absolutely created a legacy hasn't it and i, yeah. I remembered that at the time and i'd forgotten because there's so much has happened since then but it sure. was a real catalyst and then the other thing i remember being a key milestone was Beetham tower because that was our first real high rise and i used to drive in when the, you know, I start the business up into in Manchester every morning, the kids were little and stuff. And I used to count the cranes thinking, thank God, just keep the cranes in the sky. Because I thought, and then there was a time when the cranes stopped. I was like, now we're in trouble. But I remembered Beath and Tower going up and thinking, whether you like it or not, this is going to, I'm going to see this every single day for the rest of my life when I come into Manchester. And I wasn't, I was conflicted to start off with yeah, because yeah. it took away from the romanticism of the dirty old town. Yeah. That I did kind of love as well so and you're involved in in that
0: yeah i mean i think you know the, the conflict is something that um that i articulate certainly towards the end that is the manchester of today what i got into urban regeneration for you know just part that for a minute but Beetham tower so my agency you know uh publicized the topping out ceremony and it was it was national news because it was it was weird because we sat around the table and i had all this material and i worked out you know it it was in the notes i was given how high it was and i just did some basic research on the internet which was just coming into it was 2007 and i realized it was the highest living space in the country and once we had that fact because the media were very hot for the story bbc went mad for it all day long and and the ten o'clock or the six o'clock news they scrambled a helicopter to do live shoot from the roof or of the roof as it circled Beatham Tower and Manchester was on the national news why it was so critical to the city's future development was that it kind of drove a wedge into the heritage lobby because city council managed to well they were in favor of it and it basically said this is right on the edge of historic Castlefield. It's right next to the uh, I call GMEX Manchester mm-hmm. Central, but we can still have a tower here, which a lot of people, the Victorian heritage lobby, didn't like at all. I mean, look at it now around there. I think the most striking statistic about uh, Manchester's, the pace of change in Manchester, is that after two thousand and seven, when it opened, or maybe two thousand and eight, it opened. Beetham tower was was the last of, a, of development because of the economic crash and nothing was built for about five years so you think about it all the towers we see now the vast majority have been in the last 10 years it hasn't like been 40 years of towers it's been mm. 10 years of towers mm. that were kicked off by the Beetham tower so i think that shows how quickly things have moved mm. certainly even in the last few years and I, and i think from memory, of the books says there's 65 towers in the wider central Manchester area, including Media City, and there are another 65. You've got planning permission under construction, that pipeline, another 65 by 2030. So, you know, I think that's an important, I think we're an important city, and the, the book's there as a kind of legacy. So when, uh, you know, when we're all six foot under, hopefully people are be reading this, and saying that's there's a narrative there an account of how it happened
1: yeah you make a point in the book about the fact that so much of the culture that has grown out of manchester mm. in terms of like music art um literature so much of it came from the the hard yards everyone had to do or the fact that you know money was too tight to mention or whatever you mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. you go back to, to so you know joy division or the fall yeah.
0: the built environment the way yeah, the city exactly. looked yeah you know mm-hmm. culture doesn't happen in a vacuum does it no. it's influenced by um you know by the world around around you and um at the end of the book i'm asking all these questions if manchester in the 70s and 80s was the only place that that music could have come from you know what kind of music and culture generally, are we going to get from this city, and will it be unique and 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 as different as you know as the as the music of the late seventies, early eighties was? So it's just with these wider questions about how cities make us feel, how the the buildings around us make us feel, and the the influence they can have on on the art that comes out of that place. It's about the importance of place, really, mm. and of course. You know, Manchester now looks like a lot of other cities. Obviously there's still elements of Manchester, Manchester Manchesterness about it. And of course there are people from all over the world that come to Manchester. I mean, basically I was a I was an alien in the early eighties for staying here as a Londoner. You know, now it's you know, we all bump into people who live here who've made it their home from all four corners of the world. And what effect does that have on the on the culture that comes out of a city? Mm -hmm. So I suppose I was just trying to create this narrative of the very unlikely chain reaction, factory records, but also uh, factory nights in Hume that then turned into the. They wanted to open a nightclub, so they opened the Hacienda nightclub. So it's like Hacienda nightclub that became that led to Peter Savile's work with the council as creative director, original modern, Mm -hmm. led to the MIF, led to the Factory International. Of EVA studios it's kind of you know starts in this bus driver social club in hume in 1978 and ends with a 260 million pound art center in what was the arse end of salford you know but on the site the granada tv site where tony wilson te- televised the sex pistols and that inspired Joy Division and all The Fall and Hucknell and Morrissey and all these other people. So you could only have told this story by looking back over 40 mm. years.
1: It so eloquently put the daisy chain idea as well. And um, it was a poignant moment because when we both actually were at the launch of Viva Studios Factory with Danny Boyle's Free Your Mind, which, which was a was mind-blowing. I mean, we both said, like, we came out of there, didn't we? And we're like, I've never seen anything like that. And two things. One was the fact that I ended up being next to Sir Richard Lees for the whole of the performance. And I'd done the same bizarrely at, at MIFF in Piccadilly Gardens when we had the catwalk yes, to celebrate that, the community. Yes, which, yes. And I had tears then, and I had tears when we were um, at Aviva Studios. But in terms of the cultural mix or who was wanted to engage with that work, it was a joy to see... The complete diversity of backgrounds and ages in that studio. Yeah. yeah. And you felt very positive about where things are going to go and the love for that culture um, in Greater Manchester.
0: Well, I think Manchester's always, you know, is a very welcoming place and has remained so. I mean, Manchester is, is a city of immigrants, really, in so many ways. Uh, Manchester itself, you know, is only 200 years old and even age old you know Mancunians of with long ancestry in Manchester their relatives probably came from other parts of the north or ireland or wherever to the city so you know it is a it, it's a city built by uh, by immigrants in many ways and you know i certainly never had any animosity towards me as a as a londoner from any of the kind of uh music people the factory people they hated london of course they hated london and all it stood for as do as do i in terms of that power relationship Mm. and what manchester doesn't get uh what the north doesn't get because london controls everything
1: brilliant right i'm going to just do a manchester quickfire andy favorite manchester band or artist Bob Cox. Most loved building or neighbourhood.
0: The it used to be the Atlas Bar. Oh, it still is the Atlas mm-hmm. Bar on the on on the corner of Deansgate Gate um, and the l- area of little streets around it called Knott Mill. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good good memories at, for me.
1: Atlas is still such a thriving little place, isn't it? Yeah,
0: you know, I don't. It's got good good memories for me. I don't really go there much anymore, but I just kind of I love the view, mm. and of course above it you now have all the the glass and steel and it just it just seems to be a v- in that vignette you've got old and new manchester but manchester's full of those building moments where you oh my god you know there's something old and something new and the juxtapositions are very in- interesting
1: that spot when you stand on dean's gate station you just look across there it's oh. gorgeous that i've got that um painting and um it's a photo uh, i've got a simon's paint, photograph, Simon sorry, yeah, simon's yeah, photograph yeah. in my um uh, in my hall and that's before the towers are up as well what do you order at the chippy?
0: Uh, lightly battered cod and chips.
1: <laughs> Where'd you get lightly battered? You, it's stif- the you stipulate thing. that. Eat more. It's a oh, thing. Oh god! it's some more for, though. You come on. ask for lightly
0: battered fish. They know. And they 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 sorted it out for you. yeah. That's yeah. yeah. that in
1: Salford, you yeah. get battered. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, describe Manchester in three words.
0: Uh, no nonsense, welcoming, and I think inspiring. Oh,
1: that's a nice word. That's true. And what do you miss most about Manchester when you're not here? Good curry. Mm, yeah, yeah. Rusholme. That's where we used to go for all. I was so many great years on Rusholme. Well, I remember
0: when Rush Home only had about four or five curry houses. Really? Yeah. And of course, we had the idea for city life in the tandoori kitchen in Rusholme. Really? Yeah. It's in there. You, you ah, I missed that bit. Well, missed I have, it, yeah, I have, honestly, I've read most it. of it. Yeah.
1: My dad used to go down to Rush Home every... So he used to play golf. He had to get up early on a Saturday. So he played golf and was back home around lunchtime. But he used to go to Rush Home and get all the ingredients from scratch and cook a curry from scratch really? every night for like 20-odd twen- years. That was the thing in our house on a Saturday, yeah. Wow. So lastly, there's a really poignant end to the book where you say that... It might make me cry. Um, you say that uh, my adoptive parents loved me, and, and Manchester made me. But you make the point that countless others feel the same. Who didn't yeah. feel that like they quite fitted, and, and Man- they found the tribe in Manchester. So, is that how you feel?
0: Yeah, it's that it's that welcoming thing. Where, and I think, I mean, I don't know if it was because Manchester was such a an empty set, film set, seemingly like a blank page. Whether that enabled people like me to feel they could make their mark and i don't because i'm i'm 62 now so i don't know what it's like to be 18 or 20 in manchester trying to do something for yourself i kind of get the feeling that it's that still it's possible that it still exists in a way that isn't in london which is so expensive and so um um complacent and and obviously lots of people with interests in london that that i think Manchester has just got more open access to, uh, you know, to get to people, to, to ask them to help, to, mm. to get some, to get investment. Um, there are still spaces around the city, I think, where um, you can go to, you know, Cheetham Hill. There's a place called The Yard. There's place, there are music venues on the edge of Salford or edge of the city centre. So there are there's kind of cultural opportunity, I think. Um, so all that is part of that feeling that you can come into a city and play a part mm. in it and feel feel valued and recognized um so yeah i mean people have <laughs> people have said that they they tear up at the end there uh, of that book but that's you know that was just a personal note i felt i wanted to end on because because that is the case
1: mm. Well, the book is beautiful. I mean you got your paperback coming out very soon in a couple of weeks' time. I'm looking forward to coming to the lawn. She said you could get me some some tickets. You even though a sold out event. Thank you so much. And um and it's just to say thank you so much. It's been I feel like we could've do three episodes. There's so much to talk to you about. You know, there's a huge amount of legacy, Andy, I can see this book being a an important book about Manchester for decades to come and thanks so much for everything you've done and for helping us to build this city
0: thank you thanks for thanks for your interest much appreciated
1: andy spinoza built this city by coming up with the idea for city life in the tandoori kitchen in Rusholme, by finding tony wilson having a debate in a front room in moon grove and by being in his words made by manchester you can listen back to my conversation with Diane Bourne, who I mentioned in this episode. Diane is again diary editor at the Manchester Evening News, covering showbiz and celebrity events. You can hear more about that in the episode Monk 29. Or listen to the We Built the City episode with Eamon O'Neill, former managing editor of MEN Media, Monk 18 on the feed. On the next episode of We Built This City, you'll hear from entrepreneur Jenny Johnson, MBE, on how you fix a problem and become an industry leader in the process. Do you know what I really need for my life to work? I need really good childcare. And I had that inspiration on the back of my grand calling and be nearly missing a train to London because of it. And that episode will be available on the 30th of November. This podcast was produced by Purposeful Podcasts. If you want to build a community around your brand or your business, please do get in touch with our amazing team through our website, purposefulpodcast.com or on Instagram. If you'd like to find out more about how Roland Dransfield can help you drive your values and create relationships that build your business success, then head over to rdpr.co.uk. Or you can find us on Instagram at Roland Dransfield or Twitter at rdprtweets feel free to give us a call at the office on the same number we've had for 28 years nearly on 0161 236 1122 and in the meantime don't forget to rate review and follow we built
0: the city thank you